warning about today. I I do feel a little tired today. Like the, this morning, my my wife my wife is, is has a shift to the hospital today, so she so she gets up at like five, right? And so I wake up about five fifteen, and I'm like, oh great, I don't have to get up to like five forty five six o'clock. So I'm like, sweet. And I'm like, I got like forty five minutes. I lay my head back down, my alarm goes boom, and I'm like, what just happened? Never happened to you? <laughs> happened to me. So I'm, I'm just kind of, and then, and then before service with the band, we were taking communion and praying, and I closed my eyes, and I'm like, I'm going out right now. <laughs> just, so I, so I was like, standing like this, I'm thinking, this is a good, I'm just going to sit like this all day. Ah, oh, so tired. Uh, if you guys remember, why don't you uh, keep the people uh, in uh, Tatchapee Road, stuff like that, in prayer, you know, with the whole fire and stuff. Like, yesterday, those clouds came all the way over this way, and the wind kicked up and knocked it all back that way, and so it's all going over there. So I think it's, what they say, 24,000 acres this morning, something like that? It's just going like crazy. You guys don't care, apparently. All right. One thing before we start, I got I got a lot to get through today, and that's why we started with one song because Michelle wanted to do uh, the the extra slower song at the end and not cut that one, so we cut one at the front end because uh, what we're talking about. Anyway, I got a, a little building update for you. It is it is this. We are we are so close to the finish line on buying that that other property at this point. So close. It's like I I can see it from here. It is so close. But every time we feel like we're that close, something blows up and happens. So if, if you could, uh, you know, keep that property purchase where Elman's going to move to at the end of the year in, in the back of your minds. And then even after that, uh, we in our paperwork have given them 60 days to actually figure out what they're going to do. So we won't even be able to show it to you guys for probably 60 days after we even close escrow. So how about we actually, you know, pray for that to get done. And But that's where we are. We're close. We're close. You're like, what's going on? I got a blog about it. Look online, the internet. You can go there. I wrote all about it. But anyway, if you if you have no idea what I'm talking about, talk to people in the Welcome Center. Ask me afterwards. But we are so close. El- Element ended up buying another property in town because our lease ends at the end of this year. And if you've noticed, we haven't started building out there yet. So we have a place that we can go to. And whew, it is it has been a trek. It has been a trek to get there. So that's it. So if you are new to Element, you have no idea what I'm saying. I'm sorry. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Now, we did not cheap out on you today and just go black and white, okay, Because although it is cheaper for us to print this. Uh, but this actually goes along with today and darkness and things like that. So we just did black and white. This is how today is going to go, by the way. I got, like, no jokes, okay? No jokes. <laughs> Except for myself, which I almost tend to joke. So. If you have a, I don't mind making fun of myself. I, I think human beings, we are laughable, and we can poke fun at us. We, I do not make fun of Jesus at all because he is amazing and Lord and God and creator. So, Anyway, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on uh, More and then Events in Uversion. It'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Matthew 27, verse 46, and it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lamo sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to understand what you have done to rescue and redeem and save your people. That you bring us back into relationship with you and send us out to be in relationship with others. And it's all because you have done it and you have finished and you are the one who bring us, brings us back in. So teach us to live in humbleness of what you've done and great expectation of what you continue to do. Amen. Have a seat.
All right, so last year at the end of the year, uh, we did this 10-week series called What in the World, where I pulled things out of the Bible that I thought you might be like, what in the world is that? And I answered those, and during that series, I asked you to write down your What in the World questions, and we come back this year and answer those in our What in the World Part 2. I am getting more questions from you at this point, and so we might do a part three, but it'll be like a couple years from now when I actually have time to put it back in the schedule. But if you'd like to ask a question, something spurs something, write it down on one of the connect cards in the seat back in front of you. Give it to the guys at the Welcome Center. They'll give it to me, and we'll just keep that in a file folder somewhere. Uh, This is week 12 of our What in the World part two, if you count Mother's Day and Father's Day, because we did questions as part of that. In the end, we're going to answer 18 different questions that you guys asked, plus 12 that we'll do on our blogs online, so about 30 questions total. Uh, Today is going to be a little bit heavier, not that the last two weeks haven't been heavy, uh, but the last two weeks kind of PG-13 with crazy stories, and this week is not so much a crazy story, but it it is, I think, very heavy, and, and it's very deep. So I want to prepare you up front, so just take a deep breath. Yeah, okay. Somebody's got some nice perfume on. I can smell it. It's nice. Okay. And, uh, and if you need to, go get some coffee to stay awake because this is, this is the question for today. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say it? Was it faltering in resolve? Was he questioning God's love? Was he regretting God's, choi- God's choice to sacrifice him? Uh, it's a great question, and I don't even know who asks these questions. Nobody writes their names on them, so that's that's okay. Uh, I went through a lot of stuff in putting this message together, and if you don't know, I write my messages probably six months or so in advance, so I have a lot of time to think about them and put things together. And as I went back through this message, I realized I must have read an article by Tim Keller because I quote a lot of Keller in this message. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, what, what, how would a Jewish audience understand these words that Jesus says from the cross? How would Old Testament prophets understand when Jesus says these words from the cross? And then how do we, how are we supposed to understand this with all the fruition and fulfillment of the horror of this moment? So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 or your version app. Uh, and at the outset, before we go anywhere else, let me just clarify something in the question itself. Uh, Jesus being sacrificed on the cross was not him being forced to do something he didn't want to do or promise to do. It is not a form of divine child abuse. It is not that the Father sent the Son against his will to be crucified, and Jesus is second-guessing that. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, what you see this thing, what we call the Proto-Evangelion. We call that the preaching of the very first gospel. What happens is Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they sin against God, they break relationship with him, they run away from him. And we call this thing the fall. But God comes into that to seek them out, and he makes some promises in that. Some of those promises are uh, childbearing is going to greatly, greatly increase in pain. Sorry. Uh, uh, work is going to be a hassle. The earth is going to fight us. It's why weeds will grow in the middle of concrete, but your lawn won't grow in the middle of like a nice watered... Anyway... Not that I have a problem with that. I'm, I'm just saying, okay? But he also, in the midst of this, promises himself to come and rescue and redeem and save us and to crush sin. And when you see God in the Old Testament, in the flesh, it's what we call a theophany, and it's Jesus who shows up and is that person. So what you see in Genesis 3 is it's Jesus who shows up and Jesus who makes the promises to rescue and to save us. So Jesus is not questioning the Father's choice because it's His choice because He is God. So now we're going to read the verses in Matthew chapter 27 in context so we can talk about it all. Matthew 27, I'm going to start in verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until 
until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, and this is written in the original Aramaic, but it's transliterated into Greek. And the, the Greek language doesn't have all the words the Aramaic does, and so you kind of lose a little bit. So I went through all these sources trying to find out the best way to actually say this, and I think I got it. This is Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. Okay, that's what I got. You don't care, I know. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's from God to us. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the same who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of God now if you look at the gospel accounts the four writers of the gospel accounts preserve a number of things Jesus said on the cross there are actually seven of them in total and of all the statements this is the only one preserved in the original Aramaic the why have you forsaken me and the most and this is easily the most disturbing and most confusing we state, statement we have in the death of Jesus and I've gotten questions about this before uh, every few years I'm asked to talk at this community Good Friday service that they do uh, in our community that's why they call it the community Good Friday service. <laughs> and, and what they do is they give each person one of these seven last sayings of Jesus to talk about. Uh, they have never given me this verse. I, not, I haven't asked for it either, but they've never given it to me. But they give it to someone, and honestly, I have only heard one person ever not butcher it, in my humble opinion. Okay? In my humble opinion. Jesus, and I think it's because Jesus' words are so perplexing and so disturbing here. I mean, I might even butcher it today. I hope not, but, but we'll see. When it says Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it literally means that Jesus screamed, that he screamed. And I think the reason we find it so disturbing is it looked like Jesus just lost it. Uh, if you ever saw this movie called The Passion by Mel Gibson, there's this scene where this actually takes place. And in it, Jesus doesn't scream. Jesus goes, he's like, I'm going to know, I'm going to do my best, right? He's like, Eloi, Eloi. It's not funny. <laughs> he goes, he says it like that. It's not even like it is in the scriptures. I mean, in the scriptures, Jesus literally screams this out. Now, for most people, we have this universal panic about death. Most people, it's not like on TV or movies where it's like, oh, tell her I love her. And then they go. People usually freak out at death. I mean, not in all cases. Like my friend Trevor Carpenter, we did his memorial uh, last week. At, when they walked in the night before he died and, and they told him there's nothing else we can do, he goes, well, shoot. But he didn't say shoot, you know. <laughs> but but that was his response because I mean, and that's and because he knew that Jesus loved him and held him and where he was going and stuff like that. But a lot of people they actually freak out at the end. And if you ever see somebody at the end freaking out, have a lot of sympathy because think about how you go. You're going to go with grace or not? We don't know. So always offer grace. And so when you see Jesus say this, people think, oh, well, he must have been freaking out. Why does he seem to lose faith in God at the end? And the answer is he doesn't. He doesn't. If you read a lot of commentaries about this verse, one thing that you see is almost all these commentators almost seem embarrassed by this statement. Like they don't know what to do with it. They're so confused. Now, I don't think the New Testament writers were confused about it, but a lot of people are. I mean, and, and this is kind of one of the strongest arguments we have to know that what happened in this moment is historically accurate, that it's not made up legends. Because if you're making up a story about the hero of your faith, this is not how you have him die. 
looking like he's losing it or despairing or hopeless. On another side of it, you also, if you're going to write a story about your hero, you don't want everybody to look like they were confused when he's dying. Like here, everybody's confused. Nobody knows really what's going on. When Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, it's the Aramaic form of God. And people on the ground think he's calling this Old Testament prophet named Elijah because you could say his name like that. So you had these superstitious people on the ground knowing Jesus has a history of miracles like, oh, let's see if Elijah shows up and saves him. Because Jesus, as the Messiah, the the spirit of Elijah, someone in that vein was supposed to come before the Messiah and, and represent that he was going to be coming. And so what they're doing is they're thinking Jesus is confused about why he's failing at this moment. And that the Messiah was supposed to defeat all the foreigners on Israel's soil and chase them out of the country. That's what the the Messiah was supposed to do. And yet here Jesus is dying on the cross. So it's like, oh, he must be calling out for someone to come and help him because he doesn't know why he's failing. And all it shows you is from the very beginning, this cry is completely misunderstood. People didn't understand it just like we don't understand it now. And here's what I like to say about this at the top of this. This is not a lapse. This is not doubt. This is not failure on Jesus' part. Timothy Keller says this, If you can understand the meaning of this question, you have the ultimate and highest and deepest and richest grasp of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so what you have to do is look at what the question tells us, and then you can then look at why Jesus asked it, which means we need some understanding of why Jesus was suffering. Up to this point, Jesus has experienced physical suffering at the hands of his enemies and mental and emotional suffering at the hands of his friends because they're a bunch of knuckleheads. When he is crucified and when his friends betray him and deny him, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't scream. If you think he cries out because he can't take a beating, you don't know what happened on the way to the cross. They actually lash him 39 times, make him carry this this block of wood on his back, on this severed skin and muscle and bone hanging out of his back, and he doesn't cry out. People come by and they look up at him on this cross and they mock him. They hurl insults and probably other things at him and he doesn't cry out. You, he's beaten bloody and doesn't and plainly say a word. You got these thieves on the cross crucified with him and he doesn't say anything to them. But suddenly he screams. He screams. And that means something new is happening. Something new. It doesn't mean he's given up or lost patience or resolve. Something new. Because he doesn't say, oh, my hands, my hands, they got nails in them, oh, my hands. He doesn't say, oh, my head, my head, I got a crown of thorns stuck on it, my head. He doesn't say, oh, my friends, my friends, they're a bunch of dummies. He doesn't say that. What he says is, my God, my God. And that tells you something new is happening. That the physical suffering at the hands of his enemies or the mental and emotional suffering at the hands of his friends were nothing compared to what is happening now. From Jesus, from his words, from what he is saying, is he is now experiencing suffering in a completely different way because at this point, all the sins of the world are laid upon him and the Father turns his face away. And this is ultimate suffering. He is, in a sense, being forsaken. In a sense, Jesus is experiencing hell. Not that he goes to hell, but he experiences it. One of the things all the gospel writers tell us is from the sixth to the ninth hour, there is utter darkness over the land. Let me give you a really easy question. In the Bible, what is most often used to describe hell? No, outer darkness. It's not fire. It is outer darkness. Those are the words most often used to describe it because God is light. And to be banished from God's presence is to be thrown into outer darkness. Even when Dante wrote his divine comedy about hell, he decided the lowest and furthest reach of hell, the the worst place, would be the furthest away from God. And so in my mind, I actually think hell is not like fire. Hell is more like ice. 
And it's all metaphorical because fire represents in the scriptures judgment. That's what it represents. I actually assume that hell as a place would be cold and devoid of light and heat. And so what's happening on the cross, the physical world is starting to mirror that spiritual world. Especially in this case, the darkness that's happening outside is an image of the darkness that is happening in Jesus. He's being plunged into outer darkness because to remove from the light of God, to remove from the presence of God, is essentially to go to hell. Uh, Keller called it entropy of our souls. Entropy of our souls. Entropy is this concept that everything is winding down. It's also called the second law of thermodynamics. It's a cooling off and winding downward. Like, uh, if you go to Costco and you buy one of those chickens, you know, and you stick it on your counter too long, it starts to cool off. Or uh, your element, so you go and you buy a Costco pizza, and you take it home and you put it... So, and, and you leave it there long enough, it cools off, it, all the heat goes away. If you don't eat it, you just let it sit there, eventually it'll start to smell... Sometimes really quickly because it is Costco food. Uh, and, and then eventually it starts to decompose and then it's horrible and, and it rots. That's the idea that everything moves downward. And, and if, you, if you went and you sat on a table and you didn't eat or go do anything, eventually you would also perish. And you would cool down. And you would start to decompose. And you would start to rot. And you would start to smell. Everything in this world is winding downward. We are falling apart, all of us physically. Some of us worse than others. And you know this when you get out of bed in the morning, you're like, oh, my back. Right, some of us worse than others. The, the Bible says that there is this spiritual entropy in our souls. And it is called sin. And it's exact mirror of the entropy that's taking place in the world around us. And the Bible says until Jesus comes back, the world is subject to frustration. And it is subject to decay. It's falling apart, but so are our souls. Because what's in our souls? The same problem that affects the world around us. It's this idea of sin. Deep in our souls is sin, which means we have this tendency towards self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and self-absorption and self-justification. Everything that kills our humanity... This thing called sin, it's killing our ability to love and give love. It stills our ability to be joyful. I mean, think about the times in your life when you are the most selfish, when you're focused so much on yourself. All these things are being done to me. How do You can't give joy or experience joy or love because you're so self-focused. I, I love how Keller put it. He says, the only reason our humanity doesn't totally freeze is because God is still near all of us. What that means is God's kind of like the sun. And God, to some degree, is keeping us soft and warm. He's keeping our humanity from completely freezing. He keeps us from that outer darkness. And this is true whether you're a believer or not a believer in Jesus. What we call this is common grace. This is different from saving grace, but everybody on this planet gets common grace. Imagine that there is a group of people, and they are born and raised in a cave under the earth, and they've never seen the sun. And you show up, and you try to explain to them, the sun, oh, it's what warms the ground, and that's why this cave is actually warmer than it would be if the sun wasn't there. The sun, And they don't believe you. They just live in this cave. They've never known what the sun looks like. And you keep trying to explain the only reason this cave is 40 or 50 degrees and not negative 40 or 50 or negative a couple hundred is because of the sun. They can't directly sense it, and yet it's still keeping them alive and keeping them from freezing. That is exactly the situation all of humanity is in, and that is what we call common grace. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father who is in heaven. Every good thing that comes into your life is a gift from God. John 1.9, Jesus is the light who enlightens everyone. When you embrace somebody and you hold on to them and you feel that warmth going back and forth, that's common grace. That's common grace. When you listen to music or art or a play or you hike, a million different things, all those good things in your life that actually bring you alive, that's all common grace. They're all from the hand of God. And if you want to get away from God and you want to live without Jesus, you know what the fairest thing is to do? Let you do it. Success. 
C.S. Lewis said, in the end, people who reject the doctrine of hell have to be asked a question. He says, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, offering every miraculous help? He says, but he has done so. God has done all of that. He goes, but if you still want to live without him, he goes, to leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is exactly what he does. When God removes himself, the sun goes away, the humanity freezes, we're in outer darkness. And this is part of what these words mean. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says, you know, the ultimate thing is to be banished from the presence of God and his glory from the presence of his love. And so when I talk about Jesus experiencing hell, the words don't just show, you know, what Jesus at that moment just experienced, but it means that at that moment he took upon himself all of what humanity deserved, all that humanity would experience. All that we had was placed upon him. And that is infinitely worse than any type of normal hell. Jesus is really the only one who experienced hell who didn't want to. I mean, people who want to get away from the presence of God and always do their own thing actually get what they want in the end. They really do. But that's not what Jesus wanted. I don't think anybody this side of God's kingdom can fully know the ramifications of what it meant for the oneness of God to be put in such peril and jeopardy. How the sin of us, even for the briefest of moments, caused the Father to look away from the Son. But one thing I do know is that we all take it way too lightly. I think we all take it way too lightly. When someone says a doubling of a word in this culture, it has this great depth of meaning. Like when King David mourns for his son in 2 Samuel 18, 23, he says, Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. See, when, when Jesus died, he didn't just say God. It is this breath, just, just heartbreaking, my God, my God. And being forsaken is a terrible thing. I think all of us have probably experienced that a little bit at some point in our lives. You know, maybe you're picked last at recess growing up, or you get dumped, or someone cheats on you, or the soup Nazi says no soup for you, or something like that. But, but we all have this. The, the, the worst thing that we could have happen in our lives like this is such a small thing compared to what Jesus experienced. Because Jesus doesn't hate the Father. He doesn't have ill will towards the Father. They've been in perfect communion forever and eternity. Think of the person you love most in the world. Your love for that person is like a drop compared to the ocean of how Jesus loves the Father. Uh, We'll do a 4th of July analogy. It's like a firecracker compared to a nuclear bomb of how Jesus loves the Father. After the resurrection, Jesus will even say to his disciples in John 20, verse 17, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Why doesn't he say our God? Because his relationship to the Father is so unique that it's not like our relationship to the Father. For the Father to cast out the Son, for the Son to willingly accept that means He experienced just in those three hours was far deeper than anything we could ever experience. Nobody ever suffered like Jesus. He went to a hell that was deeper than anyone has ever gone. And yet those words that Jesus says right there don't just teach us about his suffering. It also tells us about the secret of his power of how he walks through these things. Like, how does Jesus do it? when he was forsaken, when he was getting all this poured on him, when he was experiencing pain like nothing else in the world, he stayed true. He keeps praying. He believes the promises of the covenant. In verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He stays in control all the way to the end, even in the midst of all this. How does he do it? He says, My God, my God, continues intimacy to reach out, continue to cling to the promises of God, even in the worst places. In Job 13, 15, people like to quote this, where Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Oh, look at Job and his faith. But Job, in the end, lost hope. Jesus never lost hope. He never gave up. And some people say, well, that's easy for Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. 
But the scriptures teach us that part of one of the reasons that Jesus came was to live the life we should have lived, that he lives that perfect life. He came as our mediator and our substitute. Uh, Peter in Acts 10 says he did everything he did by relying on the Holy Spirit of God. And again, that means Jesus lived the life we should have lived in the way we were supposed to live it. And the resource that he has, he depends upon God for his strength, just as we are supposed to. But now, in this moment, God's gone. So how does he do it? It's right in what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is? That is Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. That's what that is. He's quoting the scriptures. You know the last line of Psalm chapter 22, verse 31 says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Derek Kidner says another translation of of that Psalm 22 at the end is, It is finished. On the cross, Jesus clings to the word of God. That's the secret, and it's not a secret. The very first part of Psalm 22, it's, it's very dark. It goes like this. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. That means they hurl insults. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. End of verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. This is written 700 years before Jesus walked down the earth. And people will tell you this is describing a crucifixion, and crucifixion wasn't invented until another 450 years later. All commentators on Psalm 22 have said this is a description of this execution. But David, who wrote it, was never executed. So who could have been executed and then written about it? The fact of the matter is David is inspired by God to write these words. And at the end of the psalm, everything totally changes. As the result of this execution, something incredible happens. I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV because it gives the thoughts behind the words. But Psalm 22, verse 24 says, Praise the Lord, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. Verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Verse 30, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told. Verse 31, They will proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, for it is finished. Guys, either this is the most ridiculous psalm ever written, or it is pointing towards something. Somebody is going to be crucified and executed. And when people understand and remember that moment to the very ends of the earth, people will turn to God and be glad over it forever. And this is exactly what happened. There is one person who was crucified and the remembrance of that execution has turned people of every tribe, nation, everything to the ends of the earth and all throughout history towards God. This moment. I mean, you may not believe in Christianity at all, but one thing you've got to know is true. Jesus is the only person this ever happened to. The execution of Jesus has turned billions of people towards God. And this is what Jesus quotes in that moment from the cross in that darkness. His mind takes hold of the scriptures and he says, this is not pointless. This is the promise that I have made. That has been made to humanity for thousands of years that I would come and I would do this. This is what he screams in the middle of his pain. He lets the scriptures trump his experience. He faces hell because he knows the scriptures. And I will tell you something else. I don't think you can follow Jesus without believing the Bible. If you say, well, you know, I want to be a Christian, but it's hard I could believe, you know, the Bible and all that. What you've just done is you have just rejected the whole basis of what Jesus based his life upon. At every place Jesus was betrayed or tempted, he faces it with the scriptures. When everything falls apart in life, what comes out of you is what you truly believe. 
When you feel like everybody and everything is against you, what do you say? Oh, why? What comes out of Jesus is the scriptures and the truths and the promises of God and what he's going to do to rescue and save his people. Jesus is so completely saturated with the scriptures that at the worst of all of human history, he passes through it with grace. So many people today will tell you all the places they disagree with the scriptures. I think those are the places where we can actually grow the most. We would listen and trust and we'd actually believe. If you don't have a Bible that can trump your opinions, you don't want to really know that Jesus can come in and change your life completely. And not only that, you can't have a Christ and not accept what the Scriptures say and totally trust it and Him. You can't say, I want to give my life to Jesus and then not listen to the main thing that He based His life upon. See, we live in this consumer culture. And we say things like, well, I'd really like Jesus to come and help me and get me through this thing. But I really don't want all the baggage of Him actually being Lord in my life. If you want the real God and you want the real Jesus and a real personal relationship with Him, you've got to have a God that can contradict you. It's, it's kind of like the reality of a marriage. Um, I, I know we all think that it would be nice to be in a marriage when no one ever contradicts you and everyone just agrees with everything you say and it's so great. That wouldn't be a real relationship. It, w- it wouldn't be. It's not a real marriage. If you and your life want to actually get involved with Jesus and you think you get to tell Him what to do, and you think that the, the, the place in the Bible where it's not a good idea, you go, oh, that's not a good idea, I don't, I don't like that, then what you want is a God of your own making. And you will be just as messed up as ever. Just as ever. If Jesus can't get along without the scriptures and the study and prayer, you won't either. But if we understand this, that Jesus, in the midst of this, deals with hell, hell with the scriptures, certainly he can come and walk with you through whatever you are dealing with by those same scriptures. Because there is no secret to his power. It's the scriptures and the truth of God. Practically in your life today, do you have a place where you feel forsaken? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel like God's not there? Here's what you need to see. Jesus on the cross, suffering and dying for us to bring us back into relationship with him again. All that was supposed to be laid upon us was laid upon him. Keller wrote this. He said, Jesus Christ did not forsake you on the cross. Jesus Christ took hell rather than forsake you. If Jesus Christ loved you so much, he wouldn't forsake you in spite of everything the Father could throw at him. What makes you think he has forsaken you because of something you threw at him? See, the what in the world question is, my God, my God, why? Was it faltering resolve? Not at all. The text will go on to talk about this open temple and this curtain that's torn from top to bottom from God to us so we get to go into the presence of God. You will then read about an open tomb and how God deals with physical and spiritual death. And then there's going to be this resurrection that will directly relate to our own resurrection and coming alive again in relationship to Jesus. You'll see the open heart of somebody even like a centurion, the guy who was beating Jesus, who says, truly, this was the Son of God. Why was Jesus forsaken? The answer is for us. And when you read that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can answer it for us. For us, because this comes down to being the heart of the gospel, that we are a people who were lost and broken and we ran away from him. And Jesus comes and promises himself everything that has separated you from God, I will come and take care of. I will be the one who does that. And then you have this whole sacrificial system throughout the whole Testament that all points to what Jesus would do to rescue and redeem and save us. And Jesus comes, and as he's dying on that cross, and all the sin of the world is laid upon him, and it turns dark, what does he cry out? He cries out the words of the promises that he has made. To point everybody back to exactly what he is doing. Why was he forsaken? For us. 
This is one of the reasons when we talk about communion every week. Sometimes, it, you know, we like, oh, yeah, it's communion off all my Bible. I'm done. Da, da, da. This is a very important thing. This is why we do it every week. You break that cracker. It's meant to remind us of his body that was broken at this moment. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed at this moment for us. And we take communion in remembrance of that because it should be something that humbles us completely because of what he has done. It shouldn't be something where, where we're this, this people who are like, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't mean anything. It is something that is so deep and so profound that even in the midst of it, Jesus points to all the promises that God has made throughout the scriptures. And this is what we are people are supposed to understand. The band's going to come up. As they do, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, uh, I would encourage you to go and pray. Maybe you're in a spot in your life right now, and you are feeling forsaken or abandoned, or you have all this stuff going on. They would love to pray with you about that, because they help want to help you to understand that you have not been forsaken, you have not been abandoned. And that at times when we wonder you know, why things happen in our lives that, that are stinky and stuff, we can always look to what Jesus did on the cross and rescue and redemption of us. That it is the grace of what he has done to bring us back in. He never faltered. He points us back to all the promises that he has made, even in the worst moment. All of our sin was laid upon him. He is simply that good. They're offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give so much because God has given so much to us. And, and again, and I say that, I think sometimes we forget how much God has actually given to us. And so we, we have our, because we give of our income, because you know what? God in America most of the time is money. And so we give because God gave to us. There's food to eat in the back. Grab something to eat, meet some other people, and maybe start talking about some of these things this week. How have you understood these words of Jesus? When do you cry out in your life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I told first service this. It was a couple weeks ago when my lawnmower blew up the last time and I was trying to, I'm like, oh God, why? And I think about what Jesus did and I'm like, I'll shut up now. You know, <laughs> Because so often when something goes crazy, we want to blame God. God, why? Why is my life so hard? Yeah, it's nothing, guys. It is nothing. We simply need to trust and understand that he is the one who is bringing us back in. He is the one who is loving and redeeming and showing His grace. And then what He does is when we understand that, we become a humble people and we begin to live that out. Too often when I say it's, it's for us, we tend to be like, oh yeah, it's for me, it's so great. And then we sit there and just hang on to it. It's for us, so we would go and spread that and live it out and reconcile with those around us like God has reconciled with us. That we'd begin to live out that message on mission in the world so everyone would know what He has done. Because he has done it. And everything that stands between us and God and us and one another, it is finished. It is done. It's taken care of in the person of Christ. So let's spread and proclaim that message and restore relationships as well as we can. Because our God is good enough to restore relationship with us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of the depth of the moment when you cry out these words. And that we, in turn, in understanding that, would begin to be humbled. And we begin to live out the understanding of that cry in our lives. That you were forsaken for us. To bring us in. Because we had run so far. And I ask, as as you begin to help us to understand that, we would be completely undone in humbleness.
because of your grace. Father, I think one of the reasons that, that you talk about wiping the tears from our eyes is that we're going to better understand this moment. And we are going to weep over what the God of the universe had to do to rescue us because of our own stupidity and sin. But I also thank you that you promised to remind us in those times of your grace and your love. And so today, give us just a glimpse of this moment, of the understanding of who you are and what you've done so that we would begin to live out your calling in our lives that we would seek to reconcile with others, that we would proclaim the goodness of who you are in a very real and practical way, that people would understand who you are by how we as your kids live out your calling, and that you would be known, not just in our lives, but in the lives of this entire world, because of how we live and love and show who you are. Father, teach us to live out that great and deep calling. To understand the depth of your grace and love for us as a people. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.